My name is Jordan. Um, if you already haven't flipped to Ephesians 2, would you flip there with me? I, uh, me and small talk have some issues. I, I struggle with it. Sometimes I just am not feeling it and don't know how to do it. And so uh, sometimes I just skip it and I go straight to intense philosophical questions. And so, because uh, that's just what I like. And uh, so sometimes I'll, I'll throw out something like, What's a moment in your life where you were most quintessentially you? And some of you are like, ooh, I want to think about that. That's an interesting question. Some of you are like, I never want to talk to that man. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't do that to you. Um, but I want to try to get at like who people are. So maybe, maybe something a little bit more simpler, but still a little tough to answer is like, maybe what are five words that you would say describe you best? So you can't answer that off the spot, right? But if I gave you time to think about that, I think it would actually be interesting because I think there'd be massive diversity in answers to that question. Uh, we're, we're similar in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways, we're very different, especially a room of this size. You'd get all kinds of different answers about who you are or at least who you want to be. But the Bible actually categorizes us, who we are in and of ourselves, all of us, with one word, death. You're dead. Let me read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." You were dead in your trespasses in sins. That is the default nature of every human being who has ever lived other than Christ. Dead spiritually, dead mentally, dead emotionally, and dying physically. And, and here's what it means to be dead, is that you're, you're following things. Did you notice that, that repetition? So in verse 2, you're following the course of this world. So the, the corrosion and the, the ugliness, the social breakdown that we're seeing in the world, it's so easy to point a finger at that and say that some other group or those problems exist in the world because of these people. But what this is saying is we are participants in that world. We are participants in that corrosion. That the world is like that because of us, that we are causing it. The next thing you follow is you follow the prince of the power of the air. That's verse 2 again. It's talking about Satan. Satan is a real being, a supernatural being. Don't be blinded by the naturalism that we live in. Uh, Satan is a being who is alive and he's more powerful than you and he's wiser than you and he hates you. And he's out to systematically destroy your life. That is his goal and he's been studying human behavior throughout the course of history. And so he's very good at destroying lives. He's better at fighting with you than you are at fighting him. And here's what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins, which is the default nature of every human being, is that you hand him the keys to your life and you say that you'll follow him, that you'll do whatever he wants you to do in your life. Next, you're following your passions. That's verse 3. These deep instincts in you that, that motivate you with how you should live and what's good and what's right. He clarifies what those passions are. He says they're passions of the body and passions of the mind. 
So passions of the body, your, your instincts, what you're naturally drawn to, what you, you physically enjoy and what's natural to you, and then your mind, what you think, but I think it's also more than that. The biblical word for mind is, I think, a little bit more all-consuming than what most of us think. It involves your emotions, the, the core of who you are, what you think, what you feel. It's, it's your logic, it's your reason, and those things lead to death. Your body and your mind are leading you to death, not life. And all of us are trying to navigate the world to live a life that is good. And, and by good, I mean a couple things. One, that's good for you. All of us are trying to live a life that is good for us, that, that, we'll, that we will enjoy, that we will benefit from. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's natural to uh, being a human. But we're all trying to navigate the world to goodness for us. I think in a lot of ways, we're all also trying to be good people. Maybe not holistically, but all of us have this instinct that we want to be moral. And, and when we're maybe accused of not being moral, that's one of the hardest things for us. We want to push back against that. And in order to be good, we're relying on our instincts and our mind. But the problem is, is what this text just taught us, is that those things are broken and so what you think is good is often bad. And, and what you think is bad is often good. <laughs> Even when you're convinced that it's good, there's a good chance that it's actually bad. We're using our natural mind and instincts to move through this world, which would be like if you were navigating a boat in the ocean with the navigation system set to iceberg. It's not just that your system is a little bit off and you might get lucky, but it's actually working against you. You have an internal navigation system aimed directly at your own destruction. That's what this is saying. And so the moments you regret most in life, we have those, I have those, they're running through my mind as I'm prepping this sermon, moments of weakness that felt like they were out of character for you, moments where you weren't you and you did something that you can't even believe that you did, what this text is saying is, no, that was you. That was the real you. That came out of the overflow of who you naturally are. That wasn't an exception to the, role, the rule. It was exposing the real you, what you're like in your heart. And so any self-help strategy to fix that problem personally or any social or political strategy to fix it corporately is like putting makeup on a dead body. The, the problem isn't just that it's not pretty. The problem is that we're dead. There's no life. And you can't bring something to life through a few external fixes, through making it look a little bit better. That won't solve the problem. And because we're dead... Verse 3, we are children of wrath. Wrath means anger. Because of our death that, we is, that is self-induced, we are children of wrath. So if that is true, and I know it might be hard to accept that is truth. It's hard for me to accept that is truth, that the situation is really that bad. But if that were true, your instincts would actually be to believe that it's not true, right? It would be to downplay the truth of that statement. 
And so let's just grant for a second that that reality is actually true of us, that it's true of you. The most important question in the world would be, how do you come to life? How do you access spiritual life instead of death? And that's where verse 4 comes in. This is one of my favorite sentences in all of Scripture. You were dead in your sins, but then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's a lot of qualifiers in there. There's a lot of information that is really good that I want to unpack a little bit, but I think it's important that we see just the simple sentence. What is he saying? It's a combination of verse 4 and 5. But God made us alive together with Christ. That is the good news. That's how you can come to life. And so what does it mean to be alive? Well, it means you're not dead. I know, super profound. Your minds are blown. But okay, but here's what I mean by that. Is if it's true that you were dead in your sins, you were in your sins, they were all consuming, they were the reality of your life. Now if you are in Christ, that is no longer true of you. You are not in your sin. They, they don't control you anymore, they don't define you, and they're not leading to your spiritual death. If before you were following Satan, who was systematically out for your bad, now you can hand the keys of your life to Jesus Christ, who will systematically work all things for your good. <laughs> That he will be out in front of that bad, manipulating it for your benefit because that's what he does for every person that knows him. And that change can happen in a moment as you exercise faith in him, led by his Holy Spirit. You can be alive in Christ. So that's what it means in a a very objective reality. I think there's also a subjective reality where Jesus said that he came to give you life and life to the full, abundance of life that I don't even know how to describe, but you can start to live again. <laughs> that, that your mind and your spirit can, can wake up <laughs> and you don't have to be under the oppression of guilt and shame or performance-driven religion, that you can just stand under the light of the freedom of Christ, under his life, and that life can sort of buoy you up. But further, what does it mean to be alive? verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To be alive, we are alive by the very same power that rose Jesus from the dead, which in some ways is a little bit difficult to acknowledge because it means that it took that amount of power to bring you back to life. That's how bad the situation was. But it's also this beautiful news because that incredible power that literally nothing in the world or in the heavens could stop is alive in you and it's what's resurrecting you. That Jesus' grave is empty and so yours is too in him and you have what he has. What Jesus was resurrected to, you also are resurrected to, namely, that you with him are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which we'll unpack a little bit in a minute, but what this is communicating is something called union with Christ, or unity with Christ, which is 
what it means to be alive, where you take on the life of Christ and you live in him and he lives in you. And I, I want to read you, it's a little bit of an extended quote on this, but um, I love it. It, it, was, it was helpful for me. So, so let me read you this quote from Dane Ortland. If you can bear with an irreverent illustration, think of yourself as an onion. The, uh, the outer peel consists of the peripheral things about you, the parts of you that don't matter much. Your clothes, the car you drive, things like that. Peel that away. The next deeper layer is your relationships. Your dearest friends, your roommates, if you're a student, your spouse, if you're married. Peel that away. The next deeper layer is what you believe about the world, the truths you cherish deep in your heart, who you believe God is, what your final future is where you think world history is heading. The next deeper layer after that comprises your sins and secrets, past and present. Things about, uh, things about you want you, <laughs> things about you no one else knows. Keep peeling away layer after layer everything that makes you you. What do you find at the core? You are united to Christ. This is the most irreducible reality about you. Peel everything else away and the solid, immovable truth about you is your union with a resurrected Christ. In particular, I love that this is the most irreducible reality about you. You will not find anything more central to who you are if you have trusted in Jesus than your union with him. So you are, united, you are united to Christ. You are him and he is you. So where is Christ? According to verse 6, he's risen from the dead and seated in the heavenly places. So then the question is, where is the real you? In the heavenly places with Christ. You know those location apps on your phone where you can share your location with your friends or family or whatever? If you were to look at that dot of yourself, it would be in heaven, the real you is in heaven, and there's not your dot and then Jesus' dot next to you. There's just one dot. It's Jesus and it's you. That is your core identity. Now, of course, you're not physically there yet, but that is so secure. It's so real. It's so true of you that it's like it's already happened in the past. I love the past tense of Ephesians 2 where it's talking about your salvation as if it's already happened because it's that secure. And Jesus is physically there in heaven. He's physically ascended to the Father. And he will live there forever. And your mind and spirit and soul are there now. And you're waiting to join him there in body one day. And nothing can take that from you. Because you are secured in Christ if you have truly met him. You're so united with Christ that what it would take for somebody to take your salvation from you, for you to lose your salvation. Here's what it would take. It would take someone ascending into heaven and ripping Jesus off of his throne and bringing him down to earth back into death. That is the only possible way that you could lose your salvation if you've truly trusted in Christ. And the beautiful news about that is that Satan has already given Jesus his best shot. He's given Jesus everything he had in the crucifixion, and all it did was prove that Jesus was stronger than anyone imagined. Jesus rose from the dead, so you will rise in him. Your salvation is as secure as Jesus is. 
And so as long as Jesus is Lord over everything, which He will be forever, you will be saved in Him. And the foundation of that, the the root of that in this text, of us being alive, is found in verse 4. That God is rich in mercy. Our, Our former condition, that we were dead, was a result of our character. But our current condition, life, is a result of His. Because He is rich in mercy, we have abundance of life. So God is is rich in mercy. Let's think about that for a second. What does it mean to be rich in something? Well, all of our contexts, here's what it means to be rich, is that you have a lot of something. Um, So I was at uh, Fletcher's in Minnetonka a couple summers ago. If you guys have ever been there, it's like a restaurant on Lake Minnetonka. And they've got these placemats that have these like facts about Lake Minnetonka on them. And I read it because it was incredibly interesting. I've never been so interested in a placemat. And this was, this was one of the facts that it dropped. So if this isn't actually true, blame them, not me. Okay, it was on the placemat. But one of the facts was that Jeff Bezos has a dollar for every gallon of water in Lake Minnetonka. I don't understand that. <laughs> lake Minnetonka is a big lake. <laughs> That doesn't make sense to me. But, but here's what's true about that, is that that means you are rich. Like, you are, you are very rich if you have that many dollars. However, you, in theory, could get to the bottom of that riches. If you had enough people, if you had enough whatever machines to count that money, or if you had enough drains to drain the lake, eventually, given enough time, you could drain that thing all the way to the bottom. Even though there's an extravagant amount of water or riches, it's still finite. But what does it mean when God is rich in something? It doesn't mean he has a lot of something. It means he has everything. His riches are infinite. You, you can't get to the bottom of them. So they are categorically different than any other riches. He is categorically more rich than any person on this planet or the collection of all of us in this planet. And he uses that riches. His riches are mercy. His, his riches are activated towards us in his kindness. And so what that means is if you are in Christ, you cannot outsin, outlast, or unearn the mercy of God. It's infinite. And it's, and it's not just that he doesn't want you to outlast his mercy. It's that you actually can't. You are incapable of producing enough sin to outlast the mercy of God. Because it's categorically more rich than even the fullness of your sin. That's salvation. You're alive in him. And so how did that salvation happen? How were you saved and what are you saved for? Are the next two questions I want to ask. How were you saved and what were you saved for? So how were you saved? Verse 5. By grace you have been saved. It's funny because at this point Paul is still talking about what it means to be saved. That you're alive. But it's like he can't wait till he starts talking about the method later in verse 8. So he's talking about being alive in Christ and he's like, but it's by grace. Like, in, in case you stop reading, it's by grace. Like, he, he, he just can't wait long enough. And so he, he puts that little parenthetical statement in there, but then he expounds on, it, expounds on it in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace, unearned, unmerited favor for people who are ill-deserving. Not just that you're undeserving in the sense that you didn't earn it, but ill-deserving in that it's the exact opposite of what you deserve. <laughs> like what it, what it would said at the beginning is you deserved wrath, wrath, but God is giving you endless grace, access to his presence. And so what does that mean? What should that produce in us? Well, it means there's no working. It's a gift. You can't earn that. You don't try to pay back a gift. You receive it. There's no working and there's certainly no boasting because the fact that your entire life is based on grace means that everything you receive is a gift from God and therefore the only appropriate response is just gratitude. And even that gratitude doesn't pay him back. It's just the right way to respond to a gift. Before, you thought you were earning things and so you deserved things. And so you could complain about life or think that it should be something different than it is. But now everything you've received was out of the sheer mercy and grace of God, a, a gift from him. And so all you do is respond to it the way you respond to a gift. And you stop boasting and acting like you contributed to it. And you just praise him. Thank him. There's no boasting in this type of grace. And it's only those who accept that grace by faith that will receive it. So this grace is not universally applied. It's applied to those who accept that gift by faith. So that's how we are saved. By grace Access through faith, with which faith is just accepting and enjoying a gift. It's not a work. It's just enjoying the goodness that's been giving to you, given to you. That's how we've been saved. So what have we been saved for? There's a couple ways this text answers that. One of them in, in verse 10, it says that we're saved for good works. That we should live out our salvation. That we should begin to live differently. But I think the high point of this text, of what we were saved for, is verse 7. That's the question that he's answering, is what we were saved for. And I want you to notice that it starts with a so that, right? So, and, and raised him up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that. So, so before I read that sentence, I just, I, I want to show us the, the logic here. Is he saying everything that he said to this point in this text, and I actually think it's very likely that he's saying everything he said in the book so far. So what we've talked about in Ephesians 1, that, that we've been saved, we've been chosen by God, all these things that it means to be saved, I think it's all building to verse 7 where he's going to explain why God did that. So why did God save us? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You are alive in Christ because God wanted an outlet for his eternal goodness. He wanted to have someone who could consume his kindness forever. And so he turned you into the type of person on which he could pour out the blessings of his goodness forever. So this is worth breaking down phrase by phrase. All right, so we're just going to look at this Phrase by phrase. First one, in the coming ages. And you can just 
leave that up. We'll, we'll stick on that for a minute. In the coming ages. Okay, what does that mean? In the coming ages, he's talking about heaven, but he, he's talking about really all of future history. He's talking about eternity. The coming ages means forever, eternity. And, and if you're looking for a purpose for your life, and, and the only place that you look is this world. Like if, if you limit the scope of your search for meaning and understanding of God to this microscopically small world, you'll be disappointed. And, and you'll, be, you'll be confused. And of course you won't find it. You won't find your holistic purpose. And of course you'll be discouraged by what's happening here because you're not able to make sense of it. Because it's too small of a sample size. You don't, you don't put frozen food in the oven for one second, reach in and touch and say, it's hot, it's not hot yet, the oven doesn't work. No, it's just not done yet. You didn't leave it in there long enough. Redemption isn't done yet. Yeah, this world is in heaven, it's not perfect, it's not what we're longing for, it's broken, it's not what we expected, there's so many things that are hard, redemption isn't done yet. God's using all of eternity for redemption, and the purpose of your life lands, yes, in this life, but it also lands in who you are for eternal life. And so why is he taking so long? I want to answer that question. Why is God taking so long? Well, next phrase, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. So he wants to show us something. It's a little hint that he wants to reveal his glory. He wants to demonstrate something. Think of like an art show or a car show or, or something like that. What's the purpose of it? Is you display beauty for the purpose of awe-filled enjoyment, right? You display your artwork that you think is amazing so that people will come and go, that's amazing, and they'll enjoy it. So God wants to do that same thing. He wants to show his glory, and he wants us to respond in awe-filled enjoyment. That's what heaven will be like. But the difference between an art show and this, one is that heaven is just categorically better, and you might not be feeling art shows. You, you will love heaven, okay? Um, but also, that it's not just that we're looking at the art, but we are the art as well. Like, it's, it's not just that God makes a beautiful world and we come to kind of stand and look at it and try and enjoy it, but we are the pinnacle of his artistic handiwork. <laughs> he transforms us and makes us into works of art. C.S. Lewis talked about something like this. I think I've used this quote before, but I just, I love it. He said this, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which we can hardly, which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. Heaven is bathing in becoming a part of the glory and beauty of God and responding in awe-filled enjoyment of it forever. So that's what we will do, but the question was initially, why is he taking so long? Why does he need all of eternity to do this? Well, we talked about infinite riches, right? 
that God is trying to display his infinite kindness, his infinite goodness, his infinite mercy. Well, you can't pour out infinite riches on a finite being. But he wants to give us everything he has. He's called us co-heirs with Christ, where we will inherit everything that Jesus has, which Jesus has everything that God has. He wants to give us everything good. And so how do you give a finite being infinite goodness? Well, you design a world that is dripping with beauty, a world crafted in goodness, and you make it last forever. And then you invite that finite creature to come live there with you so that every second of every day you can lavish more and more goodness on them. And some of us are freaked out by eternity because it's long, right? You start thinking about it and your brain just blows up a little bit and it gets scary, but eternity is long because God needed an infinite amount of time to unravel his majesty and kindness on you. That's what he is planning the other day in a, in a small group that I have, um, we were praying for a guy that's just struggling with some stuff, and, and my buddy Landon prayed this, uh, I just want you to remind him, God, that, that this is not dusk, but it's the dawn. He just dropped that in a prayer. It's like, whoa, that is a, that's a line. And it, and it just hit me, like that, that man, this world is so hard, it's so hard sometimes. And it's heavy. But that line just hit me that the, the light is not fading away. It's darkness that's fading away. It's not dusk, it's dawn. And those, those little glimmers of goodness and hope that we experience of this world are a foretaste of what is coming. It's not leaving us, we're ready to inherit more. Jesus will return and the sun will rise on this world. He is himself light, and there's no fight between light and darkness. That The presence of light means the absence of darkness. When you turn on a light in the room, the darkness is just gone because it can't handle the presence of light. Jesus is light, and so everything dark will flee. Everything bad will leave. It'll just be gone in a moment the second Jesus comes back in the fullness of who he is. And when you see him, he will not condemn you if you're in Christ. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will make everything new. There's a reason why we like happy endings to stories. It's because the story actually ends happy for those that are in Christ. He will make everything good and new again. That's what he does. Now, how will he bring that blessing? How will that, that hope kind of materialize? That last phrase, towards us in Christ Jesus. Towards us. So his, his blessings are designed towards us, for us. They're not stock blessings, they're custom blessings. And those blessings come to us relationally. So yes, heaven will be an amazing place, and we've talked about that before. It's going to be this incredible place that we can explore with God forever, and we're looking forward to that. But ultimately, the blessings of God come relationally because they come in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate reward of heaven. You will gain Christ. 
And that will be the best thing about salvation. And you will inherit everything one day because you have him. And he is ultimate goodness. And so having him is to have everything. And, and, and when we see him, when we see his, his real body, he's got a real body in heaven now, and he's waiting for us to come. He's anticipating our arrival with him the way a parent anticipates the arrival of their kids at Christmas. He wants to show us around this place that he's been building and making for us. And we, when we arrive there, he will offer us ultimate good, and the blessings of God will be relationally funneled through him. And I think we, we know this, that, that the best part of things is just the people that you're with, right? Maybe you've experienced that when you're out to eat, but it's, it's not the food, it's, it's not the place, it's, it's the people. Like, you just get lost with people that you love, your friends, right? I, I remember one of the most memorable times I've spent with my wife, Jessamy, was one of our, our first, it wasn't really a date, but one of our first dates, and I had been overseas throughout the summer, and so we had just been missing each other, we were excited to see each other, and I helped her move into her new house. And that's all we did, and then once we got done moving some stuff, there was no furniture yet, and so we just sat on the floor, and it was, it was raining outside, we sat on the floor, we listened to the music, and we just watched it rain. And that was it. We like, we didn't talk, and it's one of the most memorable moments I've ever had with her, because I just wanted to be with her. It was just enough to just be in her presence. That had been what I was wanting. And that will be the ultimate beauty of heaven, is you will just get to be with Jesus. And when I was thinking about this, um, there, was this uh, there was this podcast that I listened to early in, in 2020 that, that came to mind. At one of our, our churches called Veritas Church, they interviewed a guy by the name of Ray Ortland. I've been dropping Ray Ortland quotes a lot lately. I'm on, I'm on a kick. Um, but they interviewed Ray, and they just asked him to, to talk about heaven. And it was one of the more memorable moments of 2020 for me. Um, and, and honestly, what he says is pretty simple. But I think there's a few reasons why it mattered so much. One, because it, he was saying what I think I'm seeing in this text, what I'm trying to say here is the ultimate reward of heaven is Jesus himself. And just simply being with him will be the greatest thing you could imagine, right? But I think also because it was like, man, life, life is so hard. And if you ask anybody enough questions, you're going to hear about suffering. And it's just exhausting to live here. And yeah, it's good and all of that is true and this stuff that we're teaching is true and it's right, but sometimes it's so hard to believe this is real because Jesus is amazing and all these things are true, but this isn't heaven yet and it doesn't feel like that and that's not our experience of the world. And I just felt tired. And I, I talked to one of my friends that when he said he heard this, he just started like crying for like 10 minutes. He just lost it, which is maybe a little bit weird. But for him, it was the same thing. He just felt burdened. And this was Ray talking about when we meet Jesus, it'll just take our burdens. And there won't be any more waiting and anticipating and persevering and, and like trying to hope against all hope. It'll just, the thing we've been waiting for will be here. And so I just, I want to end differently by just, 
letting you guys listen to that clip. So it's a, or watch the clip. It's, it's just them on Zoom with a couple pastors of our network and then Ray. And I just want you to listen to this clip and then we'll go back into worship. Ray, yes. as we're thinking about resurrection and hope, what's heaven going to be like? What are we looking forward to? I mean, what is the, when you think about heaven, what should people be excited about? What is the, where, what is this place we're dreaming about? Well, from my reading of scripture, I, I, Here's, here's what I think is going to happen to me the instant I walk into heaven and into the Lord's presence. It's kind of hard to talk about. But he's going to be standing there, and I'm going to be standing there. And I think he might say to me, Ray, would you like a hug? Mm. And I'll say, yeah. And so I'll run to him and throw myself into his arms and um, <laughs> I might knock him over, you know, and 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 he'll laugh and, you know, we'll both stand up and just laugh. He'll love it. And um, so he'll just scoop me up in his arms and he'll say. Um, Take your time. I'm in no hurry. So I might stay there for a year. And um, I'm going to feel this healing, like going right down and flowing down into the roots of my being. I will finally discover, I'll start to feel like, oh, so this is what it feels like to be human. This is what it feels like to be alive. This is what it feels like to be happy. This is what it feels like to be complete. And um, so maybe a year later, I'll say, thank you. And he'll say, you're welcome. And he'll, maybe he'll say, so you ready? I'll say, yeah. And he'll say, well, here we go. 